let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation. And once again, I would just like to continue to thank all of you who are taking time out of your busy schedules to tune in to Seeds of Truth and our reflections into the book of Revelation. So many reflections into what hopefully is no longer a cryptogram for you, but something that is now more readily comprehensible for you. We have established many principles. We have laid a foundation for you. So if you are listening in the countries of Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Mexico, Canada, France, Portugal, Spain, Italy, Croatia, Germany, India, South Africa, uh, I see all of you on the grid. And I do want to just thank all of you for taking time out of your busy schedules to join me. And if I'm leaving any countries out, I see many of you. (laughs) Again, just a very warm thank you. You're finding time to reflect with me into the many verses that hopefully are changing the way we not only think about our Christian Catholic faith, but maybe most importantly, the Mass, right? Because this is a book about the Mass. And this chapter that we are going to begin this evening, chapter 14, will have us continuing to go into those very rich themes that we find in the Mass, most certainly uh, the Lamb, right? I mean, you know, if you were to just kind of hit the pause button here and put yourself into John's shoes, I mean, what's going on? Huh? I mean, after John's visions of the dragon, the beast, and the second beast, John, like you and I as his readers, are probably ready for a consoling message, right, that will sustain hope. The visions of this chapter, chapter 14, do precisely that by revealing the intimate relationship with Christ available to God's people now, by indicating that God is now calling the whole world to what? But repentance. What is that Greek there? Metanoia. A complete change of heart, a complete change of mind, a radical yes to God. And as John's vision will unveil, we receive a what? A glimpse of of the final destiny of the just and the wicked that lies just over the horizon. You know, my friends, Revelation's structure is characterized by scenes of fear and danger alternating with scenes showing God's salvation and joy. At the same time, this alternation likewise reveals the structure of what but reality itself, huh? In the present age, evil forces are still at large. Nevertheless, the Lamb's power is greater and His people are united to Him and under His protection. This is our consolation. Final victory is assured and can even be experienced now in the midst of trial and persecution. What did Jesus say? Lo, I will be with you always. And in the Eucharist and the presence of the Holy Spirit, He is. Amen to that. Okay, if you want to pull your Bibles out and go to John chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and lo, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, 
and with him a hundred and forty thousand who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. All right, so what's going on here? Well, Isaiah and the prophets envisioned the restoration of Israel and Jerusalem on Mount Zion. Yet, when John sees the righteous remnant that is saved, he beholds a restoration that is truly remarkable, that the prophets were right. Jerusalem would be the focal point of the restoration. Now, little did Israel realize that God was talking about bringing the redeemed into the true Mount Zion in heaven, of which the earthly Jerusalem was only going to be a copy. Recall that conversation, right, that we had so early on, how Jerusalem was only going to be a prototype of something much greater, as John would talk about later in this book, the heavenly Jerusalem. The vision of the 144,000 on Mount Zion shows that God has not failed Israel, even if Israel has failed God. In the final chapters of Revelation, the last curses of the Mosaic covenant even come upon Israel, but not all of Israel. Earlier, we looked at the 144,000 in terms of God's promise to restore the lost tribes. But some of these saints come from Judah as well. Though Jerusalem will be judged, God has spared a remnant. And what about the song of the 144,000? Well, verses 2 and 3. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpers playing on their harps. And they sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So as in chapters 4 and 15, the remnant of Israel here sings a new song. huh? Just as Moses led Israel in singing a, a song of praise to God after delivering them through the Red Sea, so now the saints sing a new song of praise as they enter into the true promised land of heaven, the new promised land. Beautiful. Verse 4, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are chaste. It is those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. So here in verse 4, in contrast to the earthly Jerusalem, later described as a harlot holding a cup of abominations and the impurities of fornication, the saints in the heavenly Jerusalem are chaste and have not defiled themselves with women. In a word, they are spotless. Spotless. We'll get to that in verse 5. Those marked with the name of God on their foreheads who follow the Lamb wherever He goes are the exact opposite of those who follow the beast we talked about yesterday in Revelation chapter 13, verse 3. So we have this emphasis once again on being spotless, on being pure. Now this is important because when you go back to the Beatitudes, and that all-important Beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That Greek there for pure is katharos, katharos, huh? It just doesn't mean chaste, clean, but without defilement. Literally translated, a heart that is not mixed with another thing, huh? I love that. Now, the Greek translates an Old Testament understanding of Levitical ritual offering, right? The Levitical priest 
cannot be impure, or otherwise the offering would be no good. So what we are made to see here is that if we want our offering to be what it is called to be, then we must be pure, spotless. Our hearts must not be mixed with other things. That is to say, we should have a laser-like focus on the one thing that matters most, God and God alone. The image of the virgins on Mount Zion is first and foremost a symbol of the church's purity. Since harlotry is associated with idolatry in John's apocalypse, the image of the saints as pure certainly indicates their resistance to worshiping the beast. Moreover, priests of the Old Testament were required to abstain from sexual activity before entering into God's temple. This, therefore, depicts the church as the kingdom of priests established by Christ. This image is further strengthened by the fact that they are given the role of the Levitical priests, right, who sang in the temple of God. So once again, you have the literal sense, right, that historical context, which is illuminated by the Old Testament, and the spiritual sense, the spiritual sense being, you know, what I talked about as it relates to that beatitude. So this is very rich. If the vision of the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 14 seems familiar, it probably is because this is the scene that John describes almost to the exact verse in chapter 5. Consider the juxtaposition between Revelation chapter 14 verses 1 to 5 and Revelation chapter 5 verses 6 to 11. Revelation 14 verse 1, Then I looked and lo, stood the Lamb. What did we read in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6? I saw a lamb standing. Chapter 14, verse 3, before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. Chapter 5, verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. Chapter 14, verse 2, the voice I heard was like the sound of harpers playing on their harps. What about chapter 5, verse 8, and the 24 elders each having a harp. 14, verse 3, and they sing a new song. Chapter 5, verse 9, they sang a new song. And lastly, chapter 14, verse 4, these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, for the Lamb didst ransom men for God. So the 144,000 are like the 24 priestly elders who offered their lives as a priestly sacrifice to God. Further evidence for this interpretation may lie in the fact that the saints are called the first fruits. What is the significance of the first fruits? Well, in the Old Testament, the first fruits were to be an offering to the Lord, right? If you were to go to Exodus chapter 34, 26, this is what you read about, huh? These who have been redeemed have offered themselves to God as a sacrificial offering. Here I may to go back to those all important verses that come to us from Romans 12, verses 1 to 3, where Paul reminds us that our lives are to be a sacrificial offering to God, and that this offering is our what? But spiritual worship. Okay, what more could be said about this verse? Well, finally, soldiers who were about to go into battle were also forbidden to engage in sexual relations. The saints in heaven, therefore, represent what? They are God's army an army which fights against the enemy on earth through the celebration of the heavenly liturgy. Now, I suppose some of you might be asking more about the priesthood and celibacy. 
and we should say something about that. Although this image is first and foremost a symbol of the church as God's holy kingdom of priests, we cannot say that it is only a symbol. Christ himself foretold of the ministry of celibate men in the church, saying in Matthew chapter 19, verse 12, there are some who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Huh? Now, eunuchs were usually entrusted with the wives of the king in the ancient world. We read this in Esther chapter 2, verse 14. So following this tradition, Catholic priests remain celibate. As to them, the bride of Christ, the church, is specially entrusted. Furthermore, just as Mary is an icon of the church as virgin bride and fruitful mother, so too celibate priests and religious embody the church's vocation as the chaste spouse of the Lamb. There is such a richness to this particular verse when you begin to break it open in the light of both, both the Old and the New Testament. Indeed, my friends, consecrated virginity is what we can call an eschatological sign a sign of something so much greater to come, since as we know, there will be no marriage in eternity. By offering up the goods of marriage, these holy men and women make an act of life-giving love. In this evangelical council of chastity, they are making a pronouncement to this world that there is a greater world yet to come. And as the Catechism of the Catholic Church reminds us in paragraph Number 1618, they are more able to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Amen to that. All right, what about verse 5? And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are spotless. That no lie has been found in their mouths links these saints with the faithful witnesses of chapter 11, huh? Isaiah similarly portrayed the suffering servant as one who had no deceit in his mouth. In the end, my friends, through the mystical body of Christ, the church, Jesus offers his life through the lives of the faithful. We've explored this in great detail as it relates to redemptive suffering and how we are called to unite and conform our suffering to Christ. Psalm 110 envisions the people of God standing on the holy mountains where they offer themselves freely with the Davidic king, who is described as a priest like Melchizedek. In this, Catholics hear echoes of the Eucharist, where Christ offers himself as a sacrifice under the appearances of bread and wine, the sacrifice of Melchizedek. It is in the liturgy that the faithful unite their sufferings with Christ the king and offer themselves freely as they partake in the liturgy of the heavenly Jerusalem. You know, a striking feature of Revelation is its presentation of two radically opposed possibilities for human beings. On the one hand, to keep God's commandments, bear witness to Jesus, worship the Lamb and follow him wherever he goes, no matter what that entails, specific to trial and persecution. On the other hand, to worship the beast, go along with those around us who reject God's teaching and end up on the other side of those persecuting God's people, keeping trial and persecution at arm's distance at all costs, at all costs. Ultimately, my friends, as St. Ignatius of Loyola would remind us, there are two ways and no middle ground. In our daily choices, each and every one of us 
is progressing toward belonging definitively to one or the other. What's more, church teaching adds that those who choose deep down to obey God and to follow Christ, but do not purify themselves of attachment to sin in this life, will need to be purified after death. Only saints, transformed people, will live with God forever. We'll be beamed up to heaven right away. If you're wondering about purgatory, please read carefully 1 Corinthians 3. All right, how about Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 to 7? Then I saw another angel flying in midheaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. Now, at first glance, it may appear that this angel is an angel of comfort, since he announces the gospel, which of course means the good news. In reality, he brings judgment, since he announces a gospel that the people reject. This once again brings us back to the new exodus proclaimed by the prophet Isaiah. We continually go back to the prophet Isaiah. Why would we go there? Because it was Isaiah who first coined the term gospel, that term that means good news. Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good tidings. And in the Greek there, that's gospel. To the afflicted, to proclaim liberty to the captives in the day of vengeance of our God. So Isaiah explains that the good news is a two-edged sword, since to the righteous it speaks of deliverance, but to the wicked it is the announcement of condemnation. And this just gets to the heart of our faith, does it not? It just goes to the core. When the Baptist says, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand, what he's saying is, Behold, the gospel is suddenly upon you, and be assured you want to repent of your sins. Not because you need to fear God in this negative sense, but because you need to fear God in this more positive sense. And he's about to give you the grace of sonship that will open you up to that more positive fear of God, that awe-like reverence before God. So, back to chapter 14, verses 6 to 7. It should be no surprise that this angel brings judgment, huh? This angel is spoken of in the same terms used to describe the angel who announced the three woes we talked about in Revelation chapter 8, verse 13, where both speak in loud voice, both fly in mid-heaven, and both direct their message to the unbelievers of the land. Incidentally, my friends, the term the land is always a description of the wicked, in the apocalypse. Chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 10. Chapter 8, verse 13. Chapter 11, verse 10. Chapter 13, verse 8. All those verses we have talked about the land, always describing the wicked in the apocalypse. A reference to the world, if you will. Okay, verse 8. Another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, She who made all nations drink the wine of her impure passion. Jerusalem here is given the title, what? But Babylon, the name of one of the most wicked cities in the Old Testament. And more importantly, 
Babylon was the nation that destroyed the Jerusalem temple in 586 BC. Jerusalem is like Babylon because it destroyed the true temple, the true temple Christ. The words of the angel here also recall Isaiah chapter 21, verse 9. There, the great prophet describes the fall of Babylon in terms of the destruction of its idols. In a certain sense, the temple itself has become an object of idolatry for those who choose it over Christ, the true temple. The angel says the city has fallen, though John, interestingly, has not yet seen it destroyed. The angel is speaking like the prophets, announcing the coming judgment as though it had already happened. By doing this, what has he done? But he has indicated that devastation, quite simply, is inevitable. Inevitable. If the city is Jerusalem, how is it that all the nations are said to drink from her cup of impure passion? Well, it is because Jerusalem was to be the capital city of God's holy people, acting as God's light to the nations. And failing in their vocation, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, my friends, scandalized the people of the world, giving them an example they shouldn't follow. What do we read in Matthew chapter 18, verse 6? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened round his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's a point of reflection. Every time I hear that gospel during Mass, it, it just always kind of centers me. Hopefully it centers all of us. <laughs> all right, verses 9 to 13. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also shall drink the wine of God's wrath, poured unmixed into the cup of his anger. And he shall be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who have kept the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord henceforth. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Mm. In chapter 13, the false prophet threatened that anyone refusing to worship the beast would be killed. Yet the angel shows that anyone who aligns himself with the beast will suffer a much worse fate, right? Ye shall be tormented with fire and sulfur, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. My friends, to drink from the cup of the beast's impure passion is to drink from the cup of wrath. I have devoted whole programs to the siege of pornography. And this multi, multi-billion dollar industry has grown so big that unfortunately it is consuming the world. Just as Satan exploited nakedness in the garden, so he continues to exploit nakedness. Brothers and sisters, the church is not obsessed with sex. The world is. The culture is. The church simply says, live in Christ, whose pure blood wishes to invade your soul 
through and through. And is this not the example we have in the saints? You see, my friends, the saints who do not drink from this cup, even though they are persecuted, will finally receive true rest. Now, the use of the term rest here very much underscores what we've already talked about concerning the link between Adam's fall, the image of 666, and the beast. The saints are those who will indeed enter into that seventh day rest. By offering their lives, they have become priests and thereby realize their call to be life-giving sons of God. My dear friends, it is always noteworthy that death is absolutely required of all Christians. The ones who are blessed are those who, what? Die. The martyrs don't have some masochistic desire to suffer, but rather they have learned the meaning and the depth of total offering. They have understood what love actually means at its center. To will the good of the other for the sake of other and to will that good, you must first die to self. Christians are not required to pick up their belongings and move to lands where belief in Jesus is punishable by execution. That is not what the Catholic Church is saying or any Christian church should say. Their calling may even be more difficult than martyrdom, that they actually have to live every day, every moment of their lives as a sacrificial offering to God, that they have to embrace that is, you and I, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, that language of death, learning to die to our own selfish desires. How many times have I said it? Before there is new life, there must first be death. Death to that one thing you're most attached to. And if you are having a problem right now, figuring out what that one thing is, let me help you. What is the last thing you are thinking about when you go to bed? or the first thing you think about when you wake up. Maybe it's what you are spending time with and not so much a thought. Whatever that is, that is probably the thing you are too attached to. Die to that. Die to that one thing and live a new life, a new life in the Spirit. In so many ways, what we are talking about now explains the very holy logic of mortification. Mortification is the practice of making small sacrifices to God in an effort to, as St. Paul would teach us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, put to death the desires of the flesh. Paul was telling Christians to abstain from grave sins of immorality. Yet at a spiritual level, this points to Christ's calling to love him more than oneself. And this is best expressed through small sacrifices. Amen? Amen. Okay, let us... Pick up here next time with verse 14. Let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.